We're still staying at home. We're still in self-quarantine here in the San Fernando Valley. But tonight, in the early part of May 2020, I am so excited because my life has come down to this. Through the power of Squadcast, I am sitting across the table from one of the most powerful improvisers on the planet Earth. He's an actor. He's a comedian. He is 818 Valley Strong. You know him from Beat. You know him from Ghostbusters. You know him from the Planners Peanuts ad during the Super Bowl. Ladies and gentlemen, a founding member of the goddamn Upright Citizens Brigade. It is the legendary Matt Walsh. Thank you, Brendan. How long have you been a resident of the San Fernando Valley? 16 years. Valley Village for 10 and Toluca Lake for six. May I say that Valley Village is the unofficial home of most retired Chicago improvisers. Am I wrong about that? No, there's a plethora of comedians who are uh, just taking it easy in Valley Village. Also, uh, Valley Glen has a lot of uh, Chicago improvisers as well. Um, now, Matt, what would you call Valley Glen? Yeah, yeah, I'll help you out here. My guess is Valley Glen probably goes from uh, Laurel Canyon to maybe Woodman and then above Burbank, probably, and then maybe all the way to Victory. It's a fantastic neighborhood. Are you familiar with Laurel Grove? Laurel Grove. No, help me out with that. Is that off of like Chandler or something? Very close. It is technically, uh, there is a sign for Laurel Grove, basically at Colfax and uh, Oxnard. Oh, okay. And Laurel Grove is that area there. Laurel Grove is that area there. As we right continue- by the new NoHo Mall, they're going to open soon. Um, built by the people who built the Americana. And The Grove. It's a redheaded stepchild to, to both the Americana and <laughs> There's no, well, uh, if, it's very petite. If they had uh, apartments available for you, uh, or maybe to move your family into uh, a nice condo in the new NoHo West Mall, would, would you move there? Part of me maybe would have done it as a single man, but no. You're going to be smelling Cheesecake Factory every night or whatever you're above. Whatever food place as their exhaust fan kicking out the grease traps, uh, you're going to be smelling that. And that, that would get a little old. Uh, the, the Americana has uh, Katsuya. Yep. Uh, the Americana has Cheesecake Factory, as you just said. I think there's a Smith & Walensky in the Americana Mall. I might be wrong about that. But I think you're right. The smells from those restaurants would uh, probably overwhelm the senses if you're living there full time. I was told by someone in the know that a lot of the residents of the Americana in Glendale again, built by these same people, are um, sugar babies for Armenian mobsters. So a lot of the nice apartments there are kept women. Kept ladies. Maybe kept men. Maybe there's a gay mafiosa in the Armenian mob. Maybe he's got a boy uh, toy in there. <laughs> right? A hundred percent. However, I feel if we, if we answer that definitively, both of us put our lives in jeopardy. Yeah, I have a neighbor who's probably in the mafia, so let's move on. <laughs> and because you and I live in a relatively, I think we live fairly close to each other. Uh, we live by some mob oriented businesses, some restaurants that never, ever, 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 ever have 
anyone in them, yet they've been open for years and years and years. And I'm talking about you fuckers at Pyramid on Lancashire and Houston. I know you guys are mobsters, so fuck off. All right, Matt. There's so I'm. Much, there's. I gotta say, I agree with you. There's so much square footage there. There's an outdoor eating area that's like a thousand, fifteen hundred square feet, never busy. And then indoors, there's like three thousand square feet of dining, and it's Mediterranean cuisine. And of course, we know the one where the drive-by shooting happened is mobster. That's the full house on Riverside and Colfax. <laughs> yeah, look for the mirrored exterior. You don't see a lot of mirrors on the outside of buildings in the valley, but they sure got them. Uh, I, there are, if you go on Yelp and you just, it used to be called Corner Dining on the corner of Colfax and yeah. Riverside. Kitty and, Corner, and as Matt says, for Marie at sea. Kitty Corner for Marie at sea. And as Matt said to my listeners outside the city of Los Angeles, there was a drive by shooting at this restaurant a number of years ago, a quadruple homicide at a restaurant that all the locals know is completely mobbed up and money laundering. Four people, Wait, you, four people were killed. Yeah, four people were killed on the day of a very heavy Armenian mob funeral. No, that part I didn't know. Look, nerds, I know some of you out there don't like this band, but there's a lot of us Gen Xers out there who were fucking raised on this band, who use this band as sort of training wheels to get to the heavier punk rock stuff. But today, I asked Matt to just throw me some bands that he enjoyed over the years, and he gave me a band that I fucking love. So when you hear South Central Rain playing in the background, that can only mean one thing. We are today on the BrandoCast talking about R.E.M., an American rock band from Athens, Georgia, formed in 1980 by drummer Bill Berry, guitarist Peter Buck, bassist Mike Mills, and lead vocalist Michael Stipe. One of the first alternative rock bands to break into the mainstream, R.E.M. was noted for Buck's jangly guitar, and Stipe's distinctive but weird vocal quality and his obscure lyrics. R-E-M. Matt, go. (laughs) College. Uh, Huge college influence. Played it all the time. Uh, I loved it when I was... uh, I never... I didn't see them live until uh, I went to the Gorge, that venue up in uh, Washington State. It's a natural uh, amphitheater. And it was, of course later in their career they weren't at their prime but uh they were amazing and uh like you said yeah to me i guess it is early punk i was sort of like into new wave a lot and british uh punk but rem really got a lot of play in college and and were very impressionable in college so i have have tremendous loyalty to that band where did you go to school i went to northern illinois university the Mm -hmm. harvard of the midwest (laughs) I was a psych major, and I have very vivid memories of dropping a, uh, a cassette. Back then, we had cassettes uh, in my uh, an REM cassette in my apartment that was on stilts, so we could park underneath it. But because the cal was so cold, having that air circulating underneath it made it quite a refrigerator box in the winter. So it was very cold, and uh, I lived with a volleyball a guy on the volleyball club team, a guy named Bill Palter. A very good athlete, and I played on the club team too. I wasn't a very good athlete, and uh, a lot of good parties. Uh, not at that apartment, but in general, Northern Northern had a very fun nightlife scene. And what? Uh, give me the 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 vo- what? How how volleyball? Where? How did that come into play? Did you know the guy where you guys matched uh, randomly, or was he a buddy of yours, or did you join the club team and then find a friend? Matched randomly. I met him. I was in a fraternity for one year, and then he happened to be in the fraternity, and then we got along 
And we had like an intramural softball team and an intramural volleyball team. And I really enjoyed that. And he's like, you should play on the club team. So the club team had a B team and an A team. And I was on the B team and we would travel to like Western Michigan or like ball state or small Mac colleges. And we got some money and we would play tournaments. I'm not an exceptional athlete, but we played, you know, ball. uh, I was B team club volleyball. That's fucking tremendous. I mean, that you, you would oh, not yeah. think that an improviser's resume would, would include being able to travel around at any level and play sports. I don't care if you were good, bad, or indifferent. That's still a really fucking kick-ass experience to travel around the Midwest and play other club teams. Yeah, it was really fun. Uh, I remember one trip my buddy lived at uh, Western Mis- Michigan in Kalamazoo. We had a great weekend tournament there. And, uh, and also, like... Female volleyball players tend to be very attractive. So it was also <laughs> occasionally ran into some attractive women in that sport too. So it was nice. That was another perk, but it was great. We had so much fun. And uh, again, I don't know why I keep saying it. B team club, not no scholarship athletes on this team. It's a club team. So they got a certain amount of money. They were paid for, we got our jerseys were paid for and our travel was paid for, but we were not uh, an official division one program and i can remember some of the guys we had some bill was an amazing hitter and this other guy red was this big red-headed dude he was like six four and he had these paws he had these like oven mitt paws and he could block anyone he would just like dunk on people at the net it was amazing like blocking in volleyball is one of the most exciting because they just make this wall it's like three dudes just getting together and just dunking on people keeping them boxing boxing them out it's truly amazing to see people that are good at it and this is pre, but now they have boleros and they have all the, a much more advanced offense. But back in the day, it was kind of like a five-one offense, one setter and five hitters, and you rotate out, and it was great. And uh, I tried to get my kids to play volleyball, and so far nobody likes it. <laughs> so. Can I ask if you have a specific or personal best moment, a, a highlight? that has stuck with you to this day, like a game moment that you would put on your highlight reel. Like I, I, I hope that when we all pass on, no matter what the next level is, that we're at least allowed to see our sports highlights. I guess there was a couple games I can remember because I was a lefty. I was a lefty hitter. And again, I was average at best, but occasionally I would get angry and people would think I'm better. I play better when people underestimate me and they start to dismiss me and then I get pissed off. And I had a couple games where... I really mattered and I, and I think I scored, you know, some big hits and winning points, but I don't know that I have like a, a shot at the buzzer kind of memory. And then I had a badminton course in college and I played with a guy, Tim Terrell, who went on to play in, uh, in the NFL for like four years in the Atlanta Falcons. He was a quarterback for a running offense at Northern. And uh, I always thought that was neat to know an NFL player. Like I played badminton against a guy. Are the, the Northern, are they the Huskies? Very good. What was your college? Uh, we were the uh, the Northwestern Wildcats there in oh, Evanston, wow. Illinois. That's right. Yeah. We were Wildcats, and Evanston Township uh, High School were the Wild Kits. Really? That's, yeah. It's such an important little detail. All right. REM released its first single, Radio Free Europe, in 1981. The single was followed by the Chronic Town EP in 1982 which was the band's first release on IRS Records. In 1983, the group released its critically acclaimed debut album, Murmur, and built its reputation over the next few years through constant touring and support of college 
Radio. They started in Athens, Georgia, and then they spread like the coronavirus. And again, we're listening to Radio Free Europe. Do you remember the first time you heard REM? Because the first time I heard REM, because I think you and I are basically exactly the same age, was on the very, very, very early version of The Letterman Show. Uh, The Letterman Show was basically brand new and only us comedy nerds were watching it but i vividly remember rem being on that show yeah i don't know i think i probably heard them at a house party you know when i when i was living off campus would be the first time i heard them and then uh played the crap out of them i do have an indelible memory like i believe it's probably post-college these these dance clubs or maybe during college like during the summer let's say when you come home and you get to party in chicago i still lived in the suburbs where you would go downtown and we would go to like Club 950 and we would go dancing. And like Radio Free Europe is a dance song. Oh, hell yeah. That's like new wave energy dance. And I remember like that getting the floor moving and loving that song and jumping around or whatever the style of dance, punk dancing you do to those songs. But that was a really uh, undeniable floor getter goer. You know, that was like a DJ secret trick if he could get you with that one. Did you go to Medusa's? I did go to, I didn't hang at Medusa. I always felt like Medusa's was like for the 16 year olds. And I started going to these like new wave clubs, club 950. I can't remember a couple of them, but you know, where they play new order and all that. And, uh, I remember going dancing with friends and with groups of friends and it was really fun. Really fun. We used to go to Neo on Clark. Been to Neo. Yeah. And then the, the other place that we would go was, uh, it was a DePaul bar, but it was called the Octagon and they played incredible new wave music. It was just a little bar. Maybe Berlin. A hundred percent. Yeah. I remember going there a couple nights and dancing there and that was really fun. And then when I moved to Chicago, you could dance at some of the gay bars. You know, I, I was probably like on a date where I would go there and bring a gal with me. And that was really fun. Well, Berlin was, it was a gay bar. If I remember correctly, Berlin on Belmont yeah. was a gay bar, but they had the best music in the mid '80s and the late '80s yeah. for dancing. But that uh, Berlin felt like a little more cosmopolitan than like the Manhole or some of the other <laughs> little gyms. Like the the Berlin felt like because it was under the L, there was a little more in and out traffic or straights, perhaps. Uh, and when Berlin also had uh, muskies across the street, which was a, a late night Chicago diner for all the drunks. <laughs> He's shaking his head. That awful pump cheese that you put on stuff. Oof, that's still in our arteries. Yep. Now, where did you where did you grow up in Chicago? Because I don't think you and I have ever talked about this. Where, where, where did you grow up? I uh, we were in Chicago on the 103rd and Kedzie till I was like 11. And then we moved or 12. Then we moved to um, Downers Grove. And then I moved to Darien, Westmont, and that's pretty much it. And then uh, went to Hinsdale South High School, which is not the wealthy school. There's Hinsdale Central, which is the wealthy school. We were sort of the lower middle class Hinsdale South. And then uh, Northern. And then post-college, I lived like Wrigleyville, Boys Town, like all over, you know. Well, I think that when you uh, – am I wrong? Like when you first moved to the Wrigleyville area – Bucktown and Wicker Park were not yet fully ascended, right? They right. they were not. It was still kind of sketchy, sketch in certain parts of that. Like it wasn't hyper cool, like it became in the in the very early nineties. Am I wrong about that? No, you're you're absolutely right. And like uh, Division had, some, I had some friends who lived on Division, and there were some shady bars that were still like uh, I don't know, like Mike Royko looking fellas drinking there and. Uh, 
old school uh, Nelson Algren types drinking on division in the uh, Ukrainian village and, and Wicker Park had that same kind of vibe. But it was kind of cool because it was cheap. And like the Nisai, which was sort of a trendy bar later, was still like an old man's Japanese bar. So there were still like these, you know, sort of ethnic bars that you could go in and drink pretty cheap and uh, play pool. And it uh, great bar culture. It's just great. On a summer night in Chicago, you know, a couple drinks or on a winter night coming out and it's snowing after you have a nice buzz on, just nothing better. Well, my, uh, my favorite bar uh, before I left Chicago, my favorite bar was Sheffield's because in the mid and late 80s, Sheffield's played incredible new wave and punk rock music because I think the bartenders were just young punk rock Chicago guys. And this is before Sheffield's became like kind of like a hyper yuppie Wrigleyville Cubs kind of bar. Uh, they they had pool uh, tables in the back corner, right at the corner of school in Sheffield. Y- yeah, I mean, literally around the corner from M- where Medusa's was. Yes, that was the first time I think uh, like one of the precursors to UCB did a sketch show there. Okay, that was come on, tell me, shows. tell me. Well, it was just one of our first venues, and uh, I think it was called Cerebral Strip Mine was the name of the group. And uh, my brother, Pat, was uh, running around with us. And uh, actually, John Favreau, the big shot director now, was doing sketches uh, peripheral to us. And uh, Rick Roman, Adam McKay, Matt Besser, Horatio Sands, uh, and Armando Diaz was uh, directing us, I believe. Holy Christ. So this was like Improv Olympic adjacent? This was just you guys getting together to put on a show? Yeah, uh, exactly right. Uh, uh, Kind of a spinoff of like, uh, our IO buddies and, and precursor to UCB, uh, just enjoying being disruptive and trying things and being aggressive with an audience. And that was some of our early stuff and figuring it out, you know, doing like quick blackouts and trying to get our technique right. How do you go from uh, club team volleyball to uh, improvising? Basically, I just had a friend who's like, I saw Second City and they teach classes and you would be great at that. And I'm like, really? How do they teach classes? And so I took a course at Players Workshop and I was bit by the bug. Uh, Improv was one of those things that I didn't know. Nobody knows how you're going to make a living and you don't make a living doing improv, but you know you like it and you get hooked on it. and You have that magic moment where you get on stage with someone and you're able to sustain a scene that's funny for a small audience for like three minutes. And it's, there's no script and there's, but there seems to be a trajectory and there's this trust and you are embodying characters and it's working and it's like incredibly it was like i was geared to be addicted to that the minute i was successful inside of a scene amazing because chicago at that period of time and i've said this before to other people who've been on this podcast because i've had laura Kraft on the show i've had jillian vigman on the show i've had you know so many uh other chicago-based improvisers that when you're in the late eighties, early nineties, there was such an insane pool of talented people. You're part of that. And you're a heavy part of that because you go on to found UCB, but there's such an insane group of people. And really the current day American comedy is so grounded and rooted in that Chicago experience where you were all doing shows together in your early twenties, cross pollinating, working with different people. Some people go on to be directors like Adam McKay. Some people go on to be big writers like Teresa Mulligan, Brian Stack, and some people, you know, just lock into that system. But in Chicago, there's no pressure to get on a sitcom. There's no pressure to like book a movie tomorrow. 
you could work at Leona's. You can wait tables at Leona's and no one will, will think you're dumb for doing that. You know, like you could just be all my friends stayed. I was friends with a whole group of people uh, who did a show called Ed uh, and Brian Stack's wife was in that show. Those were my friends from school who were doing that show. Is that like Uh, Chris Hogan and Ed Reed or it was Chris Chris Hogan and John Lear and Carlos Jacot was in that Lauren Katz was in that show. Uh, Melanie Hoops was in that show directed by Jim Denon. Uh, Miriam was in that. Um, I left Chicago at that time rather than staying and hanging with the rest of you. I mean, which is so weird in my life because I've become friends with a lot of the people who stayed in Chicago or moved to Chicago to do comedy in that period of time. But I left Chicago to come out here like a goddamn idiot. (laughs) Well, that that show, Ed, was a seminal, uh, you know, for people who cared about improv. They were pushing long form and doing like theatrical stuff and playing with edits and uh, mood and nuance. And that was a very big show. And it, 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 uh, it was sort of like a start where you like when the beach boys did, you know, their album, the Beatles listened to it and like, Holy shit, we got to be better. You know, such an amazing period of time. You know what else is an amazing period of time? The mid eighties for REM. We're listening to the one I love following years of underground success. REM achieved A mainstream hit in 1987 with the single The One I Love from their Document album. The group then signed on to Warner Brothers Records in 1988 for somewhere between 6 and 12 million bucks. It's at that point that R.E.M. began playing larger venues worldwide. And that's when I first saw them in Chicago uh, on the Document tour. And for the life of me, that's one of those shows that I can't remember where it was like was it at the riviera or was it at uic pavilion because they were big enough to play like i because i i was the guy instead of focusing on doing comedy and learning a craft i was the guy that went to every show that's what (laughs) that's what got me in in huge trouble rather than focusing on something that i said i wanted to do i was like well i can't audition for this play because husker du is going to be playing their final show ever at the cabaret metro on this uh, opening weekend night so i Sorry, not going to audition for your dumb play. Oh, wait a minute. The replacements are playing at Poplar Creek with Tom Petty? Like, yeah, sorry, can't can't uh, do your show because I'll be gone that night. I admire people who have a passion for music and get out and see shows, so I don't know. I, I would say no regrets on your side of it. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Well, it doesn't matter anymore because now the coronavirus has uh, has equalized everything out. So, you know, neither of us may ever work again. Yeah, everything's got to be an outdoor festival and we'll be in our cars like driving movies. And we'll just watch bands from our cars. Um, what was the last concert you went to before uh, the uh, stay-at-home quarantine hit? Oh, my God. That's a great question. Uh, Morgan and I tend to see, like, you know, we saw John Prine downtown uh, maybe three years ago. But I- I've seen okay. something, but he's someone I love. Uh, boy, oh, boy, that's a great. We probably saw something at the Hollywood Bowl, and I can't remember who we saw. But what was it? Was it a jazz night? Was it a, uh, a a more of a cultural evening rather than Depeche Mode or Hall and Oates or no? It wasn't Hall and Oates. It wasn't. Could have been James Taylor. We saw James Taylor there. Uh, then we saw Van Morrison there. So those would be those would be two concerts that uh, I only see white men that play solo. You know, <laughs> John Prine, Van Morrison, R.I.P. John Prine. My last show before the quarantine was kiss and David Lee Roth at the Staples center. Wow. So, <laughs> so if I come down with David this Lee Roth by himself, well, it's hit or miss. 
And I will say, I will say to you on, on this particular evening, Mr. Roth brought the rock and he sang the songs in the way that they were intended to be sung. But most of the time in the last, oh, you know, 15 years or so, and especially the last couple of Van Halen shows, he doesn't sing the songs as they were written. And I've actually said this before. He's like an improviser who can't act, who can't read scripted material. Have you ever run across those characters who like literally cannot take a piece of scripted material and their brain just can't, they can't read the lines. They have to add their own, they have to pour their own mustard on those lines. And that's what Roth does. And, and he's still, he still wants to jump and flip, but he's a 60 odd year old man. So the focus that it takes to, am I going to do my little samurai turn right now? And he forgets about the song. So it, it's, it's just so disjointed and all over the place. But on this particular night, opening for Kiss at the Staples Center, he was great. And, I, and my friends and I kept turning to each other after he would finish his song and would go, all right, he did it. Good. Okay. He didn't, he didn't fuck it up. And he, he, didn't, he didn't make up a note that the human ears have never heard before. And Kiss was like Kiss. Yeah, it's going to the senior tour of golf. He's on the senior tour right now, for sure. Yeah, uh, he and he looks like he he looks like a dentist from Pasadena who's out there trying to rock. <laughs> he is he is Doctor Roth from Pasadena. But if that's the last show that I'll ever see in my life, who cares? Uh oh, it's Stand REM's first big hit for Warner Brothers. The first wow. big hit for Warner Brothers was Stand. From their Green album by the early 1990s, when alternative rock began to experience broad mainstream success, R.E.M. was viewed by subsequent acts such as Nirvana and Pavement as a pioneer of the game. Stand was everywhere. What I want to hear from you, I want to know, like, where were you hanging out in Chicago as a young dude? Where were, you know, you said that you liked going to some of the dance bars when you were, you know, right out of college or, you know, living in Chicago for the first time. Where were your main hangs in the early 90s? I probably spent too many nights at a place called the Lakeview because I was, uh, I did shows at the Annoyance for a couple of years and the Lakeview was at Broadway just south of Belmont. Uh, and they had a good old, they had a cook there. Mac, who made really good chicken wings, and uh, there would always be some kerfuffle at the pool table and some fights and stuff. But and God, there were so many cigarettes being smoked everywhere. That's the that's the tragedy of that place. Is like, oh, we all had so much secondhand smoke. Uh, God willing, we're okay. Uh, so the Lakeview was one. I liked. Uh, went to the Augenblick a couple times. Yes, Damon and Irving, uh, Gingerman. Kind of a beaten path, unfortunately. Improvisers tend to go to the closest tap that's open. So, in other words, if you put a tap or a keg right off stage, an improviser will probably just stay backstage. <laughs> so that's you know, you drink at the I.O. bar, or uh, you know, I'm trying to think of some other good locales for. Uh, we went to Ty's place. Uh, that was like the late night scary, like four in the morning move. Uh, I liked Nisai a lot. That was like a, the old man bar vibe. Well, you, you put, 
you put the Augenblick back in my head. I haven't thought about that place in 30 years. And I still dream about certain Chicago bars. And that's one of them. And I, the, the ginger man pops up in my dreamscape every now and then too, because I was so, I was so in love with the, the Chicago bar thing, you know, because there's a type of bar for every single person. Like if you don't like one bar, you just have to walk a couple blocks to get to a bar that, that, that fits you like a better pair of jeans. You know what I mean? And the Augenblick was one of those places that I was taken to that I was like, oh my God, I like the local option was, was really cool back then in the early nineties. Matt the room was a good one. The you Rightwood know. Tap. Rightwood the, Tap was great. John Barleycorn was good for an afternoon drink. Yeah. Uh, your, your Lincoln Park bars were great. Roscoe Village Tap. Didn't go that way very often. Okay. You know, uh, what was it? The Purple Frog? You could play games there. They had a bunch of board games. Well, was- uh, there was Guthrie's. Guthrie's had the board games too, uh, as, did the per- as, did the, as did the Purple Frog. Guthrie's, uh, that place you're talking about on school, the Sheffields, I went there a few times, definitely. Uh, and then there was a couple Bucktown places. I can't remember that I, when I was dating someone over there, I would, Danny's. Uh, did you ever go to Danny's in yeah, Bucktown? Yeah. Cause they had live music. It was a live music place and they had, uh, some good music there. Uh, yeah, those are the, like, God, I haven't thought of them either. Cause I, I moved out here straight away with my friends from college and, you know, I got here to LA in September of 1990. So I don't, I don't really have the early nineties uh, Chicago experience at all. I went back a lot. I would go back like twice a year to visit friends, but, uh, the LA bar scene in the early nineties, there were basically four bars there. They're in Hollywood. Cause we all moved to Hollywood. There was only the cat and the fiddle. Uh, there was Tom Bergen's on uh, Fairfax and Olympic, the Irish bar. And there was a place called the Coach and Horses on Sunset. And that was pretty much it. I mean, there just weren't all of the snake pit on Melrose and a what, place called Smalls. Which one? What was it called? What's that one? Uh, Smalls, which was on the corner of Gower and, and uh, Melrose. That was my favorite bar. That was the most, to me, that was the most Chicago-y kind of bar because they didn't care about who you were. The, the, the crowd at, at Smalls, it would be like Hobo, who just walked in off the street, and John Cusack, and he's brought all the guys from Fishbone to hang out and drink. And then it would be another homeless guy who would walk in. And then it would be Sean Penn walking in with uh, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It it was just a really weird, but it it had no, there was no pretension to it. They played amazing music. For me, that's always like the big thing. Are you playing music that I want to listen to? The White Horse? I did not drink at the White Horse. The White Horse on on, uh, Western. And yeah, yeah, the, the lady was mean. I had one too many uh, experiences early on at the White Horse where the the lady who made the hot dogs behind the counter was mean, uh, which which was the same as the as the as the two uh, heroin addicts that ran the Coach and Horses on Sunset, where the the Pikey is now. Uh, that became a bar that my Chicago improviser friends, uh, when they moved to uh, Hollywood, took over the Coach and Horses. That was a big Carlos Jacot bar. Okay. Yeah, but the the, the 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 father and son that ran the Coach and Horses. Um, we're heroin addicts, and uh, when it was time to shoot up, they would basically kick everyone out of the bar, lock the doors, shoot up, and then you know open the doors and let everyone back in. Really, uh, Carlos was. I, I worked at Second City for scholarship, and his grad show, or I worked his grad show. He was great, or I mean, I know he's great still, but he was sort of like someone when I was coming up. I thought was super talented. Who were the other people when you were coming up that I- inspired you? You know, I got to see 
some early Second City people. Like Tim Meadows might have been on stage and a guy named Kevin Crowley who moved back to Ohio, I believe. He was a stud. Joe Liss was another great performer. Uh, obviously, I got to see like Farley and probably Mike Myers might have been gone already, although I'm not positive. But uh, people like that, Pasquese, Second City, seeing those guys at Second City was really cool. Pasquese is a giant for people who don't know because Dave Pasquese is one of those guys that you've you've heard his voice a thousand times. I'm saying I'm saying this to everyone else uh, listening to the podcast. You've seen him in a billion things. He hasn't had that one colossal thing that you know made him uh, a star like David Schwimmer on Friends. But among Chicago improvisers, Pasquese is the guy who's sort of revered and and thought of it in, in the highest regard. And I think he was also on the main stage with Carell. Um, he probably overlapped with Corel, yeah. 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 I saw so I saw some Second City people. And then I guess even like uh probably Colbert and Sedaris and Danello and Mitch Rouse were like uh maybe Mitch didn't do Second City. I don't remember, but that generation Mitch, he did. He did? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. Uh, they were great. And then like when it was improv Olympic or it was guys like Kevin Dorf and Tom Booker and Susan Messing. You know, Barons Barracudas or uh, Blue Velveeta, Leggett, Jay Leggett. Uh, there were some powerhouse people. And then, like, my brother was on a team called Bouquet of Flesh, which was, like, Brian Stack and Jenna Jalowitz and Beth Cahill. And they were great. So it's kind of like I bought into the, you know, the small pond of it all and, and definitely had my favorite teams. But, again, you just listed an insane a lineup of people. That's why Chicago is so special. And I, I romanticize about this because Chicago is such a special period or there, there was such a special period of comedy in Chicago during this, during this time. I mean, it, it's, it's so many heavy people. I've actually said to Brian stack, he, he's got all these amazing photos of everybody, yeah. everyone young, like yeah. put together that book. I want to read that coffee table book. Yeah. You know, because it, it, it's incredible. L let me ask a, a sort of a straight interviewer kind of question. And I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but we're kind of at the obvious point. When do you decide to start UCB? Or when do you say to Matt and Amy and Ian, let's do this thing? We, uh, we all kind of met. I met Besser at a place called The Roxy. That was another place where, again, that was a club that's Hoghead McDonough's now, or was Hoghead McDonough's on Fullerton, just east of Ashland, and uh, between. And then there were some good Southport bars, which I liked. I like drinking around Southport. I can't remember those, but uh, so performed at Roxy, and uh, I think I met Besser there. And then Besser and I started doing. Besser had a camera, and he was he was up for shooting things. And I love that, like we could capture. You know, a camera back then was a much bigger. Like you had to hold two bags and. There was a cable between the two bags. It was very primitive, but that was the early markings of UCB. And then like talking about that show we did at school with like, got paired up with like Horatio and McKay and a guy named Rick Roman and Armand Armando. Uh, and then that mutated into, I guess, UCB really. And then UCB did a bunch of shows around Chicago. And I think I was doing my own stuff at the Annoyance for a while. And then I think we all committed to UCB what it is now in uh, the mid nineties and moved to New York in 96, the four of us. So that's kind of the story of that. Yeah. Did Mick Napier ever help from annoyance? Did he ever help you guys with any sort of that early stuff? Well, he didn't help. Uh, Mick, Mick was really good on, uh, he's a, he's a master manipulator. Like he's kind of a Svengali cult leader, but he was really good at your, 
uh, getting you to push your edge and try things you didn't normally do and get out of your like safe zone. And that was really attractive to me. It wasn't like a place to learn fundamentals, but it was a place to push boundaries. And then the other part of the annoyance, which was great, is like people got to do shows. Like you were given uh, a slot and you could direct a show and we developed them through improv and then, or you would be in a show and, you know, and they tended to be filthy musicals and I never had seen a musical, let alone done a musical. So my entree into theater was uh, doing parody musicals of, and parody musicals are making fun of source material like the American Songbook, which I didn't really know a lot about, but I really enjoyed it. And so I, my, some of my earliest theatrical experience in Chicago was the annoyance. And uh, it was very like free reign and, and uh, very freeing and interesting. And I think I learned, the thing I took from the annoyance was how to build a character from successive rehearsals and how to improvise from a character's point of view and how to keep like something fresh by peppering it with improv. I think those were like the, the chops I really got out of doing the annoyance. And then Improv Olympics was pretty much whole cloth improv. And I had studied there and then UCB was a blend of both of those. So I really, Chicago's great because like you say, there's nobody in the audience waiting to put you on. Nowadays there is. Nowadays there could be somebody from Chicago Hope or Chicago Fire or Chicago PD. But back then there was nobody from the entertainment uh, business side sitting in the room. So it didn't make you nervous or poison the the sort of chances that people were taking. It, it, it was that show that night was the end of what you were doing. There was no ladder there was no stepping stone that that show was going to get you. That that was my experience out here because I actually banded together with some of my friends because we were inspired by Ed and Jazz Freddy. And we did freeform shows at those little bullshit theaters on Santa Monica and Wilcox in the very early. I did a show with Anna Gosteyer in like oh, 1992 wow. and a couple other of our friends, uh, our friend Phil Pavel, who runs the Nomad Now and my friend Lou Thornton and we we were doing freeform, you know, Ed inspired uh, stuff. But you know, there in in L.A., it's always like, is this casting director coming tonight? Is this producer coming tonight? Oh, is this person that you know who's casting this movie? Are they coming tonight? And there's always that weird pressure, no matter what level. E even if you're doing some you know show out in the valley, that that it's just always there. It's and it's kind of mercenary. Too, in that someone can always get a better gig, even if you're just doing a small play at the, you know, at a little theater on Santa Monica, someone could get a better gig in the middle of a run and they're gone. LA was a showcase town and New York was a town where you could build an audience and had a theater going populous. And that's why we chose New York uh, with our sketch shows back in the mid 90s. And we got lucky, you know, but that's the reason because LA was. You show up, you try to get the casting lady from Fox Studios there, and then you do one night at a rented room, whether it's Acme or whether it's the complex over on Santa Monica and Wilcox, and that's it. And we wanted we wanted to build a following and get momentum, and you can't get momentum by like these one-off shows. I did. Uh, I, I'm guilty of doing the, the one-man show thing, and I did a one-man show in like 1995 that popped and got me Gersh. But the thing that I remember most about doing that show, and I did it at the Acme, I did it at the Actors Gang, I did it at the, the Improv. The thing I remember most is going to the Ralphs on Sunset and using the fax machine because it was only a nickel per fax and having to fax Leslie Litt from Warner Brothers 
and Amy blah, blah, blah from NBC. And just, you know, sitting there like a jackass with 30 different faxes. Wow. Yeah. And, and actually it, it kind of worked. You know who, you know who probably had to use a fax to uh, invite people to see them? Michael Stipe. <laughs> oh, we're listening to maybe the biggest REM hit, ladies and gentlemen, Losing My Religion. The band released its two most commercially successful albums, Out of Time in 1991 and Automatic for the People in 1992. Both these albums veered from the band's established sound and catapulted them to international fame. The big hit from Out of Time again was Losing My Religion. R.E.M.'s 1994 release, Monster, was a return to a more rock-oriented sound, but still continued its run of success. In 1996, R.E.M. re-signed with Warner Brothers for a reported 80 million bucks. At the time, the most expensive recording contract in history. Have you ever been close to an $80 million contract, Matt Walsh? No, but you're a music guy, so it's, so explain to me, when you get an $80 million paycheck, how do you have to pay that back? Are you on the line for concerts and albums, or is that an $80 million signing bonus that you can do with as you please? Well, all bands will tell you that you sign an $80 million contract, and then you know you buy your big house in Laurel Canyon, or you buy your, your little estate in Topanga, but... That money is carved up by uh, record company accountants who make that $80 million go away. They actually, I'll give you a quick story. A friend of mine is in the band uh, Matchbox 20, and they went out one night for a super fancy dinner after they signed uh, a, a big recording contract. They go to a huge dinner. Everyone's celebrating. They're just ordering tons of shit. Let's just say they're at Ruth's Chris or they're at Boa or whatever. And the bill comes and it's like an $8,000 bill. The accountant, the record company guy signs it. He said, ah, we'll just put this on the Hootie account, meaning Hootie and the Blowfish. And my friend realized in that moment, like, oh, that's where the contract goes. So when you get $80 million, you don't get $80 million ever. Like, it's not like you, it's not like a signing bonus in football, right? Where you get like $5 million, sign with us, here's $5 million. 100%. 100%. Now, I'm, I know that there are some bands that strong arm their way into trying to get the, those kind of paydays. But for the most part, there's recording fees, which are giant. Uh, I think that you know there's distribution. There's all kinds of... There's a giant book of charges that are going to go against your mythical 80 million bucks. Still, for a band that used to tour around the Midwest in a goddamn van, that's pretty fucking special. Let me just finish out R.E.M. We didn't even talk about R.E.M. Because why would you want to talk about R.E.M. when you have Matt Walsh, who's a fucking improv god? All right. Bill Barry left the band in 1997, while Stipe, Buck, and Mills continued the group as a trio. The band continued its career into the next decade and went on to sell 85 million albums worldwide. In 2007, the band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in their first year of eligibility. R.E.M. disbanded amicably in September of 2011, announcing the split on their website. They have never come back again. And that is a that was a very abbreviated, very disjointed history of REM. But REM nerds, if you're listening to this, go find it yourself. It's all out there on the web. Yeah. Well, they probably already know it if they're nerds. Yeah. They well, music nerds. Music nerds are the worst. Do you think are there improv nerds like audience member improv nerds? Did you notice like the same 
people coming to show after show after show after show in New York? Uh, there were. There were there were people that uh, got addicted and stayed in the seats, and then there were people that got addicted and then took classes and then ended up being performers. So you got a little bit of uh, both worlds. But it's not groupies though. Like there's not. I don't think there's groupies in comedy or certainly not improv comedy as there is in like rock and roll but uh but i do think music is more people are more like they gather the arcane details of it whereas like comedy i guess improv is just so you know it's flammable it just burns up and it's gone so there's no real you can have folkloric tales of like a night or a scene but you're constantly just resetting the table and it's about those intangibles that you remember or the hang afterwards or, you know, things like that. So there's no room for like uh, a lot of nerdism and improv, I think, although people in on the, on the fan side, if you will, but people who are in it, like people like Jason Manzukis or who came up through UCB or Seth Morris or Owen Burke, buddies of mine, we can, we can name teams and we can name guys that came in for a year or like weird, you know, a guy who worked at IBM named Ed Snibel, who was like this weird improv guy on the scene for a year and it was a genius and then disappeared and no one saw him. You know what I mean? But it's not the same as like, uh, there's no hard copy of anything to, to look at and memorize. Well, you know, I was a, I was a little jealous of all the thing because by the time that the 90s ended and I was transitioning into writing, I was burned out. Be from going to Ralph's and faxing uh, invitations uh, for show after show after show, and and there was because LA didn't have a set place. There was no IO. There was no UCB on Franklin. Second City didn't really have a footprint here. You know, I took a, a class at Second City, but it was at a storefront in Santa Monica, and it was just kind of dead. You know what I mean? Like there wasn't that I, I wanted the group experience and it didn't really happen here in LA, you know, because LA is such a mercenary town and it's the kind of place where the best guy from a team is going to get picked. And I, and I really, I really, I, again, that's why I romanticize, uh, you know, your experience uh, because I'm friends with so many people, Mitch Rouse and P. Holney and Mike Coleman and Crafty and Teresa Mulligan and, you know, everyone that was able to sort of do it this way. Adrian Wenner, you know, all my friends did it yep. by the end of the but 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 when the time that Improv Olympics started here in L.A., I felt like I was too old to try to join a team <laughs> at I.O. And this is like 2001. You know what I mean? Yep. Or 2002, which was just dumb. Uh, but, you know, I, again, I, I just I, I have such respect, uh, deep respect and honor uh, for you and and what you've done. I mean, I'm a huge fan. I hope you don't mind me say this uh, as we wrap up. Um, but, you know, your footprint on uh, American comedy, not just with UCB, but your own work, you know, it's just awesome. The last question I have for you, did you ever do a straight play? During that period of time, like even in the early Chicago, uh, I, your early uh, time in Chicago, or even in New York, my Chicago days, I never did it in uh, New York so much. But in uh, Chicago, uh, my first theatrical uh, play, the first play I ever did was right out of college uh, at the uh, Players Workshop. It was called the uh, the Gathering, and it was uh, a sort of a light comedic take on the Last Supper. And it was how, in the way that the uh, Goodman Theater will do Christmas Carol to make their year every year. Then they can do their experimental sets. This uh, Players Workshop every year would do like an Easter play and they could tour it to various churches around Chicagoland. And so all the 
actors in it were comedians. And so that was the first theatrical thing. And people like, and Jim O'Hare from Parks and Rec, who's still a friend, was in that, one of my first theatrical things. And then the other thing I did was uh, a play called What Cops Know at the Live Bait Theater. And I did that. I did a run there for a while with, boy, who were the two people that ran it? Doug and his wife. I can't remember them. And Kim Lee Smith was one of the actresses in it. And uh, it was great. It was great to do real theater. And I, I suspect there were moments in it that I think of, like, I bet that wasn't because I had to die in the play. And I bet I didn't do it really well. Like, I, there are some times <laughs> where I think, I, I bet I didn't do that right. That was early on in my acting career. Well, you've done all right. I'm glad that you didn't become a professional volleyball player. Uh, the world has benefited from your choice. I didn't have the hops. Didn't have the hops. Have you ever gone down to the beach in Santa Monica and tried to get into a pickup game of volleyball? No, I don't care. I'm usually in tow with three children and my wife, so there's not much room to get to Santa Monica these days. Beach volleyball is amazing. Like I'd love to sometime. Yeah, that's a. That, I, I will say this: uh, that when they do the pro volleyball thing down in, in Manhattan Beach at the pier, like the Bud Light Pro Am, that's a fucking scene, and those are some fucking heavy volleyball players. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. All right, Matt. We've been talking for 57 minutes and 26 seconds. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for participating in the Brando cast. I could not be more thrilled and honored that you do th that you did this. Uh, please say hello to your lovely wife, Morgan. You're absolutely the best uh, for doing this to everybody else. Thank you so much for listening to the Brando cast. We are growing uh, at a rapid rate. And I just want to thank you uh, for all those of you who subscribe and listen on a weekly basis. We have Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks coming up. Uh, we have Jimmy Pardo. Uh, so many big guests coming down the pike. Uh, you're going to be psyched. So again, thank you so much, cats and kittens. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>